Hello and welcome to Meta Perspective with Matt and Andy, the show exploring how to think, act and be in an uncertain and complex world. This is episode number two. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're returning, awesome. Either way, it's great to have you on board on this journey as we try and navigate this crazy world together. So where did we get to last time? And what can you expect from today's episode? Well, episode one, I think I described it previously as a whirlwind tour of themes and topics that Andy and I want to discuss throughout the series. We started off by looking at how the pandemic has accelerated and surfaced a lot of the trends, movements and ideas that are in our rapidly changing world today and ended with some of the things it might be lacking or even calling out for. In this episode, we're going to take one thing that emerged from that conversation and we're going to explore it more deeply. That theme being the relationship between the individual, which we'll be referring to as the agent, and the environment, which is the world in which that agent, that individual, is placed. And the term for the environment, the world, the way the world is organised and structured and put together, we'll be referring to as the arena. You'll find out why as we go along. So this episode is all about exploring that, the agent-arena relationship. But why does that matter? Well, we think that through exploring this relationship, we can understand better our current moment, thinking about how we as individuals can shape our environment and how in turn our environment shapes us. And I think you'll see that those two things are rather intimately connected. With that out of the way, let's get into it. If at any point you want to reach out, you can send us an email to hello at metaperspective.io, all one word, to continue the conversation. We both really hope you enjoy the show. So we are back for another trial episode, another episode, whatever this might be. And yeah, I was thinking what would be awesome this time around to kick us off is to try and be specific on a subject that we want to talk about. Because one of the things that we noticed when we sent out our test of our first episode is that people wanted an entry point and a way of understanding what we've been talking about. And if you remember in our very first conversation, we were running at 100 miles an hour discussing many different subjects. But there were two or three things that did come up that seemed to me to be the kind of bedrock of a lot of what we want to speak about. And one recurrent theme that we want to discuss is the difference between an agent and an arena and the interplay between the two. And I suppose just to help people that are listening to the show understand what we mean by agent and arena, I think we should just start there and kind of dig into what does that exactly mean? What are we talking about when we talk about an agent and an arena? Yes, I've been, I think as you have, quite inspired by the work of John Viveki and others who have been really looking at this area. And I guess one way of thinking about the agent arena relationship, especially as it applies to us as human beings, is being able to think about ourselves as individuals, individuals who we like to believe are autonomous. We have our own independent thoughts and actions that we are sovereign in some way and that we're in control and feel like we can make decisions about ourselves and what we do. But those decisions and actions are not wholly independent. They rely on a kind of context that we find ourselves. And that's 
you know, the arena, which could be, I think, certainly comprised of a physical world. We live in a particular space inhabited by infrastructure, housing, an environment. Many of us live in towns and cities and in houses, so the arena has a physical element to it, but it's more than that. It's also we live in a social context. We live amidst a, a network of relationships with their shared practices and often beliefs associated with it. So we as individuals live in a context and that context often shapes how we act and think and behave and shapes what we believe and feel. So the relationship between the individual and the relationship between, let's say, the arena, I think is a fundamental way of thinking about this relationship between I guess one could say in one level nature and nurture, but also how free an individual are we and how and to what degree are we shaped by the environments we inhabit? And if we can step back and look at that, how might we think about shaping ourselves to better cope and better manage in the environments we find ourselves? And also the responsibility, how might we shape the arena that we find ourselves in to make it more conducive to individual lives well lived and through that collectively well lived? How do we think about this as a frame for thinking about what it is to live a better life for us individually and collectively? So I think, yes, agent and arena is a, a really important way of thinking about how we exist and partake in the world and how we might think about what we can do to shape ourselves and shape the arena we find ourselves in. One of the reasons why I think this is fundamental when we talk about an agent and an arena is that I think a lot of the time people across different worldviews either think that the world revolves around increasing an individual sense of agency or it revolves around changing the arena so that someone can become a better agent in the world. And it seems to be quite a, a polarized view. Some people think, okay, all that matters is that the agent is responsible for themselves. You are responsible for your own decisions and your own actions and for the life that you live. And some people hold to that and say, you know what? It's all about personal responsibility. It's about making your own way in the world. And it's up to you how you navigate the arena. But then you'll find people on the opposite side that say, actually, no, your arena, your environment shapes you so fully that without that environment changing, that person, that individual cannot change. So it's almost like a discussion between how much is your individuality affected by external factors or by means of yourself being able to overcome your environment of your own accord. And I think that those two things hardly ever have a synthesis. They're always in competition. Either you think, okay, we just need to keep changing the environment until people can change their behaviors. Or you say, no, none of that's going to work. People have to learn on their own how to take responsibility. And I think that that's why it's such an interesting topic for us to discuss, because I think a lot of the time when it comes to education, different institutions, whatever it might be, the topic's often about what do we need to do so that people can act and think and behave in a way in the world where they feel like they're empowered to make decisions that are right for themselves and their life trajectory. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think this sort of dichotomy between is the individual fully autonomous and shaping themselves and their own agency, or is it totally controlled by the environment which shapes them? I think this is 
been a, a theme that's run through Western thought and Western politics for, for a long time. There was a great debate about the blank slate, the idea, are we born completely blank and your environment just writes onto you, which it can from the experiences that you have, which then shapes you completely? Or is there something inherently you that's embedded, I guess, as we now know, in, in our genes that give rise to a set of capacities and capabilities that interact with the world. Uh, and this has kind of dogged philosophers and politicians for a long time. And it, you could see it playing out in politics, especially of the left and the right, where the right really focuses more on the agent, the idea that it is up to us to get our act together, get in control, work hard, go out there, make something of yourself and if you don't, in some ways, there's something suspect about your morality and your willingness to put your shoulder to the wheel. You know, you're a slacker, some say. Whereas the, the left has been very aware of the degree to which our environment does shape us and our opportunities, and that no matter how much agency and determination and capability we may bring to the party, if the arena that we find ourselves in is highly complex or toxic or difficult, then the efforts of the individual can be thwarted by the environments that they face. And we certainly see that with social inequalities, the intergenerational transmission of that. So in some ways, when you look at those, the strengths and weaknesses in both, there's truths in both. Yes, we do have individual autonomy and agency. And whatever context we find ourselves in, there is certainly an argument that we could make the best of what we find and, and do what we can. But there's also an argument that says we should take care and take note of the context that people find themselves in such that we can create arenas where it's possible for more people to realise their potential and that any civilised society should recognise we should be nurturing and cultivating and strengthening both individual agency and autonomy, but at the same time, making it possible to create the context where individual realisation of potential and flourishing is made possible. It's one of those situations where, at least for me and my perspective, we want to be trying to understand the environment in terms of how it can enable the expression of the individual. Because I think when people talk about the environment, or let's call it the arena, when we think about the arena and the way that some people treat the environment, it's about changing the environment in order to change the individual into a certain way of being and a certain way of acting. But for me, the way that I kind of look at it is we want to change the environment so that people can autonomously choose what is best for them so they don't have to be molded or shaped into anything, mm -hmm. rather that they can follow their own life trajectory and follow what is to them their true calling, their true sense of being, and express that in society. Yes, I agree that in order to fulfil one's own agency, one has to be fully aware of oneself, one's limitations, one's potentialities, one's possibilities, and be afforded the opportunity to do work on the self, which I think is important for all of us. And as we've learned through psychology, whether it's through the interesting works of Freud and Jung, which draw attention to the fact that in all of us, there are 
good and bad, positive and negative. And all of us at times, I'm sure, have felt overwhelmed or overtaken by negative either emotions or ways of seeing the world that then can inflict harm and damage on ourselves, our own psychology and our own ability to relate and engage. So there's certainly work that we can all benefit from in terms of reflecting more deeply and observing how how we think and act uh, in ways that can improve and increase our own agency and sovereignty. But I come back to this point that in order to flourish, in order to engage with the world, flourishing in some sense is not just the independent agent taking action. It's also the, the arena gives rise the possibilities from which an agent can manifest their potential. But there's also this kind of coupling, the relationship that then exists between the individual and the context we find ourselves in. And I think There are so many areas that we as society need to reflect upon about whether indeed we are providing the environments and contexts that enable people to flourish. And out of the evolution of civilization, we've extracted ourselves significantly out of nature. I mean, one of the things of the Middle Ages was this idea that we could transcend our dependence on nature. So we've increasingly built environments, whether it's towns, cities, the concrete and glass jungles that we inhabit, where we find ourselves extracted from nature. But we also built a number of institutions that can at scale provide us with the resources from which our agency can engage with to find and discover ourselves. So our education system, our media, our economy, our systems of work, and even our politics, how we collectively make decisions that shape the arena that allow us to fully uh, realize ourselves. And shaping those institutions and what they provide by way of helping and supporting us individually and collectively, I think is an important piece that needs to be linked to the journey of the individual. It's that coupling between what the institutional and contexts feed us as the sort of nutrients, if you like, from which we can draw from to find our own agency and expression. Uh, And I think this is such a fascinating and such an important area to, to really explore. I love that analogy. I almost see it as fish feeding on all of the plankton near the coral reef or something like that. All of the institutions being the the coral in in the reef. Yeah, I think institutions play a massive role and it's a really important time for institutions as well. Now that we're entering into a phase in civilization where things are becoming more uncertain and more complex and for an, an individual to find a sense of agency or to feel like they're empowered is tough. And one of the big problems that we've got is that sometimes we're not even aware of said arena. A really good example, and I know one that's doing the rounds at the moment with the release of The Social Dilemma, is the technological arena, the digital arena. We're not even aware necessarily of the influence that technology and social media has on us and our sense of agency. So we have to become aware of the arena and aware of the forces at play within that arena in order to have a sense of agency and efficacy in life. Exactly. In order to decide how to act or how to respond or what to believe, we drink from information 
from the outside that pours into us and, and we use as the raw material to, to work on to try and make sense of what's happening out there. How should I think about that? Who am I in this world? What role do I play and how should I make sense of and act? And therefore, the information that we receive, whether it's structured information through education, education that tells us what's important and shapes our understanding of the world and furnishes us with the knowledge from which to hopefully pass exams and pass into the world of work. Uh, Our culture, which shapes what it is to be a successful person in the world. We live in an era where we know that materialism has played a great role in defining what it is to be successful, what to aspire to, what to focus my energies on becoming and achieving, or the converse of that, to judge oneself in not having that, to feel less capable, less able to succeed. Esteem and dignity are important parts of holding a harmonious autonomy and an agency together. So the stories that our world tells us about what's important, we absorb and ingest, and it becomes part of our identity and how we live. But the day-to-day understanding of what's going on currently in the world, as you rightly say, is heavily compromised. And there are some fascinating programs like The Social Dilemma, which really point out the degree to which, interesting enough, business models can corrupt the sources of information that we use to make sense of ourselves and the world, which then lead to us getting massively confused about ourselves and our relationship with the world, which is starting to ripple out in in all sorts of problem areas at the moment. The idea that maximizing your time on site to drive advertising business models, because by maximizing your time on site, we can collect more information, profile you. There's an AI, the other side of the screen, that's working on understanding you better than you understand yourself and serving things up that will either keep you interested or sufficiently hijack your limbic system through shock, horror, anger that you will continue to watch, that that process starts to create those sort of filter bubbles of things that seem to feed your own interests and prejudices and bias and then ratchets them up. And in the course of ratcheting things up to the more extreme, more people share them. So that which is extreme, that which is outrageous, is propagated through social media ever greater than truth, leading to a position as we do find ourselves now that many people are absorbing their news, seeing the world and understanding what is going on, how they should react to it, and who should they uh, align with from these extremely myopic filter bubbles, which is leading to a a collective sense that no one can see what's really going on. No one has a shared understanding of what's really happening. And of course, whether it's culturally or whether it's politically or increasingly economically, if we don't have a common understanding of what's going on in the world and a sort of baseline reference point from which to make decisions on, our ability to coordinate and make shared decisions starts to break down, which is what we're increasingly seeing around at the moment. So as wonderful as our agency can be, this process could probably be playing a role of shaping and polluting our sense of who we are and what's going on in the world, which then compromises our individual ability and collective ability to to flourish. I see this being one of the really important issues that we face today that needs urgent attention. 
Yeah, this is fundamental. I mean, going back to the coral reef analogy, it's almost as if right next to the coral reef, there's been this huge oil spill, this polluted information ecology, where we can't actually make sense of our arena. Therefore, we feel like we can't couple with it correctly. Mm -hmm. And then we don't know how to act. Or let's take the coral reef analogy further. You're just stuck looking at a bright orange starfish. and You're never moving away from said starfish (laughs) because this starfish is just taking all of your attention. But you don't realize that actually there's another few fish around the corner that you should probably go and hang out with or you should go and explore the coral reef. The way that that arena has changed so significantly over the course of the last 20 years, I think it's happened at such a pace and it's happened so dramatically and so quickly but at the same time it's happened so subtly let's yeah. say that we're kind of stuck not knowing how to make sense of the world and, and we need to kind of look into what is the role for agents and institutions and elements of the arena to get through that to clean up that old spill essentially i've become more and more interested in evolutionary psychology by virtue of the fact that it helps i think to shed a little bit of light on why we think the way we think, what some of our possibilities are and what some of our limitations might be. So when we're faced with novel situations like the massive expansion in information that's happened over the last generation, the polarization of that through these algorithms and the business models that drive the algorithms, how do we make sense of it, what we do about it? It's interesting because in one way, you know, there is more information, even taking account for the way in which it's filtered. There's more information going on in the sense that we can see more things that are beyond our physical horizon of control. There's things going on across the city, in the country, around the world that in previous human history, we would never have known about unless someone brought us stories of things that happen beyond our borders. So in some ways, that which is salient and relevant has increased its span from that which is immediately around us and perceptible from our senses to things that are beyond our horizons, things out there have now become salient. And one of the things about news, of course, is that the more dramatic, the more outrageous, the more it becomes newsworthy. And there's a sense in which more and more stuff about the world hits us, of which we can do nothing about. There's a a level of impotence. All we can do is absorb that which is going on out there, which is often presented to us as the tragic, the bad, the diabolical, the outrageous. And there is a sense in which there's a disempowerment, the inability to act or do anything about it. There's a kind of impotence, which is anxiety producing so at one level we get very anxious about things that are outside of our control to be able to do anything about and also if it is then subsequently polarized as well (laughs) our anxiety is now ratcheted up by indignation and outrage as information is increasingly twisted to feed our biases it can be overall overwhelming It, it can be not only unsettling but There's a sense in which the world feels out of control and there's nothing we individually feel we can do about it. It's this kind of collective angst and ratchets up anxiety across the population. And when there's too much information, we can't make sense of it. There is a kind of nihilism that comes in. It's like it's too hard, it's too complex, it's too mad out there. And I don't really know how to make sense of it. I no longer trust the institutions who normally 
curate information presented to us, like the, you know, the, the traditional media outlets or even politicians. Like everyone is biased. Everyone is putting some agenda I can no longer trust. And people increasingly sort of seeking other entities from whom they would trust to make sense of it. So proxying their sense-making, if you like, to use a phrase, to people to whom it feels like they're telling the truth. It feels that this is right. So we're kind of replacing the ability to rationally make sense of all the evidence and come to a a considered conclusion to that which feels right. And if you notice the way that politics and culture is manifesting itself now, everything's more about feelings and emotions. And it's very difficult to get to the underlying issues, deconstruct it, understand it, fit it back together to make sense of the world if we now proxy our sense-making through feelings and feelings alone. Therefore, the job of the agent in the arena can feel like it's losing grip. And therefore, I think there's something, as we may have talked before, something interesting about stoicism, which is, what is it that I can control? What is it that I can't? Because if I fill my mind and fill my existential anxiety with things out there in the world that I can't do anything about, I'm going to overwhelm myself with anxiety and I'm going to be less able to have autonomy and agency for the things that I can do. So let me focus on the things that I can do and things that I can control, things that I can do myself to improve my ability to act in this world. And so I think adjusting that buffer is part of how we deal with the increasingly polluted information that can flood into our psyche if we let it. I think there's two things to cover here. What is the the job for the agent in this arena? And what's the job for the arena Mm. (laughs) for the agent? Both need to change in a certain way. And obviously now that we're in this information age, the, the problems you were highlighting there are there's too much information, first off. And second of all, the information that you do happen to come across can be heavily manipulated and based on emotional predisposition, which creates polarization. So first of all, having too much information is a challenge because you'll just get fatigued by that. I think when people were reading things like 1984 and they were worried about the state controlling information, people didn't really consider the fact that you can just suffer from fatigue and indifference from having just the overwhelming amount of information that's there, which is why I also think that one of the future foundations of an information economy is going to be the curators, the people, as you alluded to, that are going to be like, okay, I'm going to win over your trust. And we're already seeing that a little bit with journalism going more onto the internet and moving away from the mainstream. But as an agent, you are, like you said, you're almost stuck in this sense of feeling overwhelmed because you don't see a pathway through the, the pollution even with the fact that you can go and discover someone that maybe you can trust a little bit more to give you some information, you're constrained by time and that feeling of overwhelm gives you anxiety, which means you feel less efficacious. You feel less like you have autonomy and the ability to make sense of the world. And if you can't make sense of the world, you can't make good decisions. I think that anyone that's worrying about these kind of things and how to interact with the world needs to start thinking about reading a bit of stoicism and understanding that the arena can mean so many different things. It can mean the global state of affairs. It can also mean your your house. Have a think about stoicism and look at your life and evaluate what can you control? What changes can you make in your life to make your world and 
the world better for the people around you and learn to also be comfortable with the uncertainty and the complexity of the world in areas where you can't necessarily affect change on the agent side. On the arena side, one thing that came to mind as you were speaking for me is the importance of storytelling and the importance of having really empowering positive stories of people that are navigating the world effectively so one of the people that i always bring up in conversations when people feel hopeless especially around the environmental crisis or, or climate change is boy slap which i know i brought up to you off podcast when he was a teenager he started a business to take plastic out of the ocean which has gone from strength to strength and i think the arena has a duty and a responsibility to put forward positive messages that show that there is a path forward, there are opportunities to affect change on a grand scale if you want to go down that route. And the more we negate those people, the more we shut those stories off, the more disenfranchised people will feel. But the inverse is true, right? If we can find those people that are doing great things in the world and are navigating the world properly and we can really give them a platform and, and it's one of empowerment and positivity and change, then I think the arena can start to inspire as well, which... I think it needs to move towards and not always just be hounding us with negativity. It needs to show us a clear, empowering vision of the future, especially for the younger people coming into society. Yes, I think that's a really important point. There needs to be beacons of hope, inspirational people, new stories and narratives that can be sources of inspiration and attraction for people to see that getting lost in the flow and become nihilistic is to give up on not only on life but on humanity because if we collectively do this we're going to drift further and further into a world that's sending us more and more mad and anxious and destroying the environment and all the other things that we can see increasingly uh, shaping our environment so we need a different story and I mean, this is something I'm trying to do around health, but I think there's many other people who feel the same way, that we'd hope that politicians or people who have significant cultural influence could play a greater role in starting to paint out new visions for where, as humanity, we might go next. I think perpetuating the status quo, just tweaking what we have now a little bit, up or down, it's a sort of managerial politics, as is often said, is not up to the challenge that we now face. So bigger, better, bolder, more beautiful ideas of what it is to individually and collectively live well should hang over us so that our institutions and our actions across all these facets of life can have something of a an aspiration and a goal to work towards. I think one of the interesting things in economics at the moment is the sense that economics is too important to be left to the economists. The economics and economic thinking, the idea that everything is driven by money, whether it's traditional capitalism or even how we spend money in public services or however we think about ourselves and the role that money plays in our thinking and self-esteem. The reduction of everything to money to markets whether it's traditional markets or we ourselves are often productizing ourselves it's selling ourselves in the market you have to see that more explicitly in things like tinder and other things where we're actually marketing ourselves the way that we think about economics and finance has shaped not just the institutions that make money but also 
our relationships between ourselves and what we see as important or not, or what's more important than something else. So we need to think about economics and business in ways that see economics and business as something that is a force that's in service of society, not extracting from society. So where we've been talking about social media companies pursuing a business model that's polluting the entire information ecosystem, which is unraveling culture politics, we've made the pursuit of money such that justifying that can be possible in our modern world, even though we're unraveling what it is to live as individuals in in a harmonious society. I think we we are at that point in history where we do need to reflect deeply on what kind of world do we wish to bring in, whether it's what education should we be providing for our kids? Is it critical thinking? Something that's absolutely going to be important because they're going to be in a world where this information game is going to be incredibly important to navigate without losing one's head or losing one's sense. Do we need to be thinking about shaping markets and business to ones that appreciate and drive towards creating value? Do we need to be shaping politics to ones that are less about naked pursuit of power and who's funding you through the back door and all that sort of stuff to something that's much more attuned to what people really need and want? And what I see and gives me great inspiration is that in a lot of young people, at the moment, there is a sense in which the world that they've inherited is running on the wrong source code. (laughs) There needs to be a a resetting of what is priority, what is important, such that we can recapture the sense that my life is important. I can make decisions about how I live my life that can feel right, not that I'm absorbed into some game that I have to sell my soul to, to participate and climb up the greasy pole or whatever it might be, that there is a way of shaping the relationships I'm in, the institutions that I become part of and might lead in such a way that orientates this back towards something that feels that it's got the human at the centre. What's important to us individually and collectively is driving the new source code of tomorrow. And whether that's politicians, new narratives, inspirational people that can give examples of that, or whether it's next generation education, bringing people up to think more critically and more humanely. I think these are all pieces that need to be assembled into a new operating code, if you like, for the next generation. Without it, I worry where the hell we're heading to be honest the way that i'm kind of looking at that shift in understanding from the next generation and looking at the different source code and saying you know what we need to do something here i feel that that's an inevitable consequence of the shift of the industrial way of thinking the industrial age legacy of that and saying well actually we live in a completely different arena now Mm. than we did before and there's still lots of like we've mentioned in our first ever show, we were mentioning about a lot of the legacy that's been left behind that's framing the way of people behaving, thinking and acting. People have been brought up in a new arena now and that new arena is demanding a different way of being, a different way of thinking, a different way of acting. And we're going to hear a lot more about this as a lot more people navigate this new arena and say, well, actually, you know, those people that spend seven years going and getting an amazing degree at university, 
that is actually now not relevant. I'm going to go and get my education online. I'm going to have a side hustle. I'm going to run a podcast or a YouTube thing, and I'm going to do my own thing. And I'm going to navigate the world in that way because this is now the world that I'm in. I'm going to be the curator of information for my peers or whatever it might be. So I really like that image of a different source code. I just feel like rather than it being the consequence of maybe a wrong turn somewhere, I feel like it is the inevitable consequence of the progression that we've undergone since the Industrial Revolution. And I think that probably we'd need a separate episode to do this, but mapping that thinking and that those worldviews that have shaped our world and our society to now would be really useful in breaking down and understanding the new arena because to understand the new arena this kind of information age that we're in it's also helpful to understand what has been brought from the past what is is still there that's a legacy and what is like we said originally what is worth keeping Mm. from that and what is worth completely discarding and we just got to be really careful not to confuse the two i think that's that's a really good point to bring up it's something we should explore further but yeah at a very sort of hundred thousand foot level the rise of the scientific revolution, the the idea that we could work things out, that there are laws of nature that we could discover, that we could seize through that knowledge, the power to create tools to utilize that knowledge in pursuit of changing the material world with more power than ever. The role of the material, the role of things has increased at the same time as the value of our own imagination, our own psyche, our own consciousness has become in some ways less important because in some ways it didn't fit into a material account of the world. So we've got wonderfully sophisticated through our industrial revolution and and onwards through and up to now in terms of creating these tools that incorporate into institutions that can do amazing things, whether it's sending rockets to the moon or industrial production of consumer electronics or building of cities. We, We can build the world and it's like we've transcended nature. We've in some ways, it's almost as though we fulfilled the promise that the dreamers had in the Middle Ages of being able to develop the power of man to reduce his immediate dependence on nature, to build his own heaven on earth. But in the course of building this infrastructure, which runs on a source code of economics, we've forgotten the human being, we've forgotten the consciousness, we've forgotten What is actually important in terms of my felt sense of being alive, the sense of agency and autonomy, the beauty of living, the variety and pursuits that I can dedicate my life to? We've found ourselves increasingly cogs in a machine where the machine now has its own source code, which sucks us into its orbit rather than these institutions and what and systems we've created being truly in service of enriching us, our quality of our lives, the experience of our lives. And I, I think that, as you say, is incredibly important. Our elders, if you like, if you go back in history, as we know, thought deeply about these questions, the blending, the harmony between that which was psychologically or consciously felt and expressed in the course of how to live a good life, how to experience a good life, how to feel and be a good person was way more than the material things you could accumulate and the things you could do, as important as they were. It was bringing that together into a collective that led to the good life. And I think we need almost need to recapture the best of those eras and that thinking 
recognize the strength of our technology and our systems today and blend it into a new form of being that can recover the beauty, the wonder of what it is to be alive and live a wonderful life that doesn't have us beholden to systems that don't have our interests at heart, that have their own system-generating interests at heart. How do we do that? How do we think about that? This is, I agree, the challenge of our age. And I think building another point that you made, which is, I think, really important to a sense of what it is to be an agent in the arena of the modern life, one of the facets of that technology has brought is rapid change. The idea that even in our old world that you would get a job for life and that your life would be kind of pretty much planned out. And as long as you optimize for it, then you could work your way in that niche to have the most fulfilled life that that niche would permit you. If work itself is changing, if the world is changing, the idea that we need to become more self-authoring of our own life. There's a call for agency in how to self-author one's own life in a rapidly changing world. We're probably more and more going to be doing multiple jobs, possibly facing multiple relationships with multiple interests. How to curate that, how to build that is both threatening, but also a wonderful opportunity for increasing agency and autonomy as well. So there is forces at play that constrain and conflict and make it difficult, but there are also opportunities arising for more. So there is both things to address in the shaping of the arena, but massive new possibilities for agency and possibility as well. So this is an amazing time to be alive. It really is. And I think it's so important that we keep talking about the fact that it is. Because again, one of the consequences of living in a world that we live in right now with our arena as polluted and as messy as it is, is that it's really hard to see that. It's almost like there's a scene in one of the Matrix films, I can't remember which one it is, where the whole world is absorbed by loads of grey clouds. And then for a second, one of their ships goes above the clouds and they just see the sunlight. And it's always been there. I say the Matrix, I mean the world outside of the actual Matrix that they make. So the dystopian earth that's being destroyed they come up out of the clouds for a second and they just see the sunshine for the very first time in their lives and then they go back in we just need to remind ourselves that there is that sunshine there even though there's all of these clouds over us and the more we can do that and the more we can understand hey actually for all of the craziness that's going on now this is an amazing time to be alive this is an amazing time for us to to be involved in this i was going to say that covid time has been really instructive on so many levels one the ability to climb off the hamster wheel of day-to-day life as we've talked about before to have your attention sucked into the daily routines that suck so much time and energy out of us and we try to find richness in the daily habits and routines and often drudgery of our jobs to suddenly find yourself off that contemplating other things and realizing what else there is there to think about, to do, new relationships that we could forge or old ones that we could strengthen and deepen, things that we could value that we weren't valuing because we never had the time. It's given us a glimpse of what else life could consist if we were to organise it and see it in that way. And also, just in the area that I'm working at the moment, in health, the ability to mobilise so many people in healthcare to completely transform what they needed to do in the context of the healthcare emergency, whether it was rallying to support people who were suffering from COVID, or the huge 
acceleration in providing digital infrastructure to support remote consultation. These are people who lived and worked in institutions that were saying, oh, it'll take us 10 years to do any of this stuff. And then within 10 weeks, it had transformed. It shows if we have a purpose, if we have something we believe in and we're unshackled from our bureaucracies and the constraints that a lot of our institutions put us in, look what we can do. If there is a real need and an opportunity, we can gather collectively together and do things at speed and scale. Why don't we do more of that for more important things around us? It shows what can be done. And why isn't our environment, our arena, our institutions, why aren't they telling us the positive side of things that are going on in the world? Because, yes, there's loads of things going on right now, which are really, really heavy. But there is so, like you just said, there's so many positives that can come out of dark times. And we need to talk about those. And we need to say, look, the ingenuity of humankind is is boundless. We we can get through this if we collaborate, we work together. There's so much about that which we really need to be we need to be telling ourselves the right stories. We need to be creating these stories and these ways of thinking that give us the ability to feel like we can affect change. And what you said earlier was brilliant about we're living in an uncertain and very complex world now, which means that the onus is on the agent. The onus is on you as an individual to become more responsible. So more than ever, we need to have these stories talking about how we can do that, how it is possible to take on responsibility. From my personal experience of wanting to become more autonomous, wanting to feel less disenfranchised, wanting to feel like I can do more with my life and be more of an agent, I would say some of the, the key things is, first of all, you need to get to know yourself. Mm. You really need to spend some time understanding yourself, understanding who you are, your background, your patterns in life, what drives you, what your kind of personality is. And then, yeah, like you were saying, when it comes to educating the next generation, everyone needs to understand critical thinking. They need to understand how to generate different narrative landscapes so that they can understand different people's opinions. So one of the people that we also follow quite closely, a a guy called Daniel Schmachtenberger, talks about how we need to actually look at both sides of the polarized political spectrum and generate the narrative from each side to understand how they're feeling, what they're communicating, and try and spot the signal within the noise from both sides to understand and make sense of the world. So learning how to do critical thinking is an imperative, not just for education, but for ourselves as people that want to become more autonomous that want to feel like they can affect the world in a greater way and then one of the other things finally that I was thinking about and it's closely tied to knowing yourself is understanding what raises your self-esteem I think personally there's a saying in this book called the six pillars of self-esteem funny enough which is really brilliant really brilliant book and it says self-concept is destiny which essentially means how you think of yourself and what you are capable of doing, you will eventually become. If you don't have a positive self-image or you don't feel like you can affect change, you will not be able to do so. So actually understanding what raises your self-esteem. And when I talk about self-esteem, it's not about making people feel good and giving them out badges and prizes. It's about 
taking on responsibility, feeling like you can be more assertive and can control your environment. We need to look at ways to raise the collective self-esteem of society. Mm. Unfortunately, through the current information ecology, what's actually happening is we're kind of losing our self-esteem. So just to give some basic pointers for increasing your sense of agency, I feel like that's a good place to start. Couldn't agree more. If we don't have an increased sense of agency, which is emboldened and enlivened through self-esteem. Without self-esteem, it's very hard to feel confident and and feel that sense of autonomy and self-belief. And without that, it's impossible to defend against the buffeting winds of what's going on out there at the moment that can easily draw us into a sense of despair or outrage and we become part of the problem that we observe there is a need to distance. And as you say, critical thinking is incredibly important to give us that distance from the noise, to be able, as you said, to sort of distill or divine signal from the noise, be able to do it from multiple perspectives. We're hardwired for multiple perspectives. We have two eyes (laughs) because one eye would just give us a sense of what's in front of us. Two eyes gives us a sense of depth. It gives us the sense of being able to see around and different sides of things like we have two ears it gives us a parallax on something which gives us much more precision and accuracy that we need and we we should learn as you rightly say we need parallel perspectives maybe multiple perspectives to try and make sense from which we can formulate our own sense making insulate ourselves from being buffeted by these forces to create some cognitive space to develop our own sense of what we believe and what's right or wrong, to hold that, to use that to drive our own agency, not to be swept along, but to stand for the things that really matter for us, the things that we care about, the things that we believe are important for us and those we love and care about around us. And as we get better at that, the people around us can augment if we're find ourselves working in institutions where we have responsibility for a greater number of people, our agency can manifest itself in ways that augment its reach to wider communities. And we have the opportunity to change something. Because one of the fascinating things about the arena and the institutions that comprise it is that we can often think of them as dark or other forces of which we have to battle against. But inside every institution is another human being. The institution is made of agents. (laughs) So one way to change the arena and change the the direction and the way that institutions behave and what they believe in is for more autonomous agents to inhabit and take positions of responsibility that can shape those very institutions that then in turn shape the arena that provide the context for the next generation to come through. And I think that there's hope and there's great possibility in that. And the reason it can feel so torn and so bleak at the moment is, as I think we'll explore in many of our conversations, we're at a really important moment in history. This is not just a few changes. This may well be a paradigm shift in what humanity is and can become. And as one paradigm starts to break down, i.e. the the internal contradictions, the laws and frameworks that people use to make sense and governments start to break down, we start to see things falling apart. And it can feel very scary. It can feel like, what the hell is going on? But these are the signs that something is breaking down 
and the time for something new to be born. And the new to be born is scary. It's an environment where there's perhaps a lot of anger, a lot of confusion, a lot of things starting to fall apart in quite scary ways. But in that space are the seeds of the new paradigm. And those who are possession of more agency, more autonomy, more ability to think independently with more sovereignty are going to be in the position to help individually and collectively guide us through to what that new paradigm looks like. And this is the challenge of our age and one that's so, so important. I would just add to that as an agent, one other thing that's worth thinking about if you want to be playing a role in this shift, in this paradigm shift and having a voice in it is also to know your arena, know the arenas around you, know the one that this age has been born out of as well. Understand the past, understand what has led to the moment that we're all in. And I think that both Andy and I are very keen on exploring that in this show. What has led to this current environment? How should we think about the past? What can we take with us from the past into the future? Because I think that there's always, especially when it comes to change, there's always a real, maybe desire is too strong a word, but there's always an inclination to scrap everything that's come before and be like, okay, let's just start from zero. We know better than everything that's come before us. I personally think that that's folly. And I think one of the things as well, if you want to be understanding how the world's changing and why it's changing and what's led to this is to say, okay, well, what were the influencing factors that led up to this and what are the forces today which are driving change? And the more that you as an agent, as an individual, can understand the environment and how it's evolving and how it's changing, the more you'll be able to cope with the sense of uncertainty and to feel comfortable in uncertainty and complexity, which I think in this particular moment in time is super important. Yeah, I, I would 100% agree with you. <laughs> Again, I mean, if, if you put a kind of epoch lens on this, then one could say that modernity as brought into being by the Enlightenment and those times, going back to your really important point about what could we learn from history, learn from different ways of thinking that are important and essential for us to think about this new challenge and what new do we need to build on it. I just wanted to make this point that the Enlightenment brought in this notion of modernity, as people call it. One of the key features for that was that looking beyond tribes and religions and nations to see that there is something universal in some ways about many facets of life. And certainly the laws of physics and the laws of nature showed that there are things that are universal, that transcend any particular place or group. That it is possible to think of things like justice and democracy, human rights, that there are things that are universally applicable that are important to contemplate and think about if we're to think about ourselves as a shared humanity moving forward. And I think postmodernism was important as a kind of critique of that to bring out the fact that even if those ideals and ideas were taken up and taken forward, the way that they were taken up and taken forward was such that some people did better out of it and lots of others less well 
and there was a need for a corrective. There was a need to critique that and say, you know, what about the place of women in this world? What about other minority groups? And this corrective, I think, was really, really important. But if we had to come back to our agent and arena framing of where we are and where, where we're going, we are agents who share a common arena. And one of the challenges for us is, given all of those correctives and those critiques, how out of that do we build a, a new arena out of which us as individual agents, recognizing our differences as well as our commonalities, can find a collective space, a collective place, if you like, to live together in a way that's going to provide the greatest flourishing for all of us. Because we do share our towns, our cities, our country, this planet together, and therefore finding some way to take what is powerful and true and universal and take what needs to be corrected to adjust and account for difference. That harmony is part of how we build a new arena. Tearing it down and leaving it in rubble (laughs) isn't likely to yield a place that's going to give us what we collectively need. It's an act of critiquing and construction. And and that is the call of our time, I think. What is the new arena and the new agent for these times? Yeah, it's about iteration and evolution within the current frameworks that we're in. At least that's the way that I currently see it now. We spent a lot of time discussing the agent, but the arena side of it is also really interesting because... When we look at institutions and society in the way that we are producing agents, let's say, it's probably not the best way to term it, but the way that the arena functions in the expression of the individual needs to have a serious iteration, needs to to evolve quite considerably. And you were mentioning before about the way that maybe the organizing principle of our current economic model has been built around extraction. Mm-hmm. And we can see that quite insidiously in technology and social media where we have an extractive attention economy, Yeah, right? So one of the things that we need to be thinking about with the arena is how do we go from extractive policies, extractive organizing principles that are seeking to take and shift that to a completely new paradigm, which is one of regeneration, which is one of value generation one that completely changes that on its head and one of the things you said to me again off podcast because Andy and I often just have random conversations and it was one of the most interesting images that you gave to me when we were talking about how the arena can shift and one of the things about how the arena can shift is right now at least in the UK when we think about supporting people that are in need of support we talk about having a safety net and you told me this you were like look we think about a safety net. People can get stuck in a net. If we think about that as an image, what are we really saying? Now, one of the interesting ways of thinking about how an arena can change for the better is thinking about this shift that Andy told me, which was instead of thinking about it as a net, why aren't we thinking about it as a trampoline? Something that when people fall upon it, we can bounce them back up into society. For me, that was such a great way of thinking about how the arena can play a part in helping the individual. So I wanted to to bring that up because I just wanted to talk to you about that again. Yes, we've been talking, I think, largely about how people could positively engage in an arena to find 
and realize their potential. But the recognition in a civilized society is that we're not all equally capable of realizing potential and that whatever arena we bring into being has its own rules of the game and some will be better placed to succeed and others less. And certainly people who lose their job for no fault of their own may even have a a relationship that ends that may find them out in the street or hopefully not, but many people do find themselves in sickness, infirmity, physical or mental or any combination of the above. There are people who are going to struggle and the civilization, I think, of any society is also measured by the way in which we take care of those who can't take care for themselves. And some of those may need sustain support and help but many will fall upon hard times or struggle because of circumstances out of their control either something's happened in the arena and they fall down the crack or they've been raised in an environment which has less opportunities than others and there's a real as you say an opportunity not to think about putting people into a relationship of dependency with the safety net that then creates an incentive to stay inside a net that provides some sort of sucker and some sort of protection. But to recognize that each and every one of us has potential within us. And surely our role as a civilized society is to enable people to develop the capabilities and opportunities to make something of their lives. And therefore, rather than ensnaring them, as you said, in the safety net when people fall upon hard times, to see that as an opportunity to rally around to support them in getting their own life together and finding ways to provide them or support them with the information capabilities required to engage in the arena to find their own way in life. They will have a better life. It will be better for the state because less people are snared in the net. And what you can often find is that people who fall upon hard times, usually in that moment of adversity, there is often great moments of self-knowledge and self-reflection and self-understanding. And many of these people can often come back more creative, more capable of giving more to the world as a result of their hard experience than those who've coasted through it. So I think all round we should reframe our thinking for those who fall upon hard times as an opportunity, as you said, to see this using the metaphor of the trampoline to help people bounce back. And society would be a lot better off for it in all dimensions, I think. When it comes to institutions and the arena in general, and when we talk about the arena, it doesn't just have to be the institutions, it's the the entire society at large, the world in which you engage with. I think that those institutions, obviously one of the very first things that we've already mentioned on the show is institutions need to do what they can to make the people that work within those institutions agents as agentic as possible, full of autonomy, full of self-expression, full of being able to realize and fulfill their potential, full of the ability to take on responsibility. I think one of the most important things with any institution really is to organize in a way that enables the people working within it to feel like they have a sense of agency. Beyond that, when it comes to actually looking at social situations where we're trying to affect change in terms of policy, I think, again, it has to come down to how are we 
changing certain parts of our arena in order to increase the sense of self-esteem someone might feel when you know when they've hit rock bottom if you can increase someone's self-esteem they're going to be able to feel like they're able to do more if you can help them to understand themselves better if you can give them and equip them with the tools with which they can actually progress throughout life and, and continue on their life trajectory as they want and help them to fulfill their potential we need that kind of chain reaction, I believe, where we're like, okay, we're helping each other to increase our agency. We're helping each other to express ourselves as individuals fully within society, within the collective, in a really cooperative and empowering fashion. Yes. And as well as an orientation towards seeing people as human beings who have potential and the opportunity to support them and help them. What's interesting is also the role that new emerging technologies might be able to help us in, in this regard. If you do fall upon hard times, it can often be quite traumatic and stressful, of course. The complexity of all the multiple agencies that you might have to deal with, all the forms you need to fill in to get whatever support you might need, to even know what's available to help you. Most people who fall on hard times are simply unaware of the resources that are already there within their own communities that they could draw upon. Or even charities and community organizations who are set up to help people are not even aware often of the people who need their help. So in some ways, there's huge amounts of resources already there that if we could better identify and link and bring together for people when they do fall on hold times, in, in some ways, part of the way was just connecting the dots between that which is already there and the people who need it at the time and the place and the context in which they need it. And so there's huge opportunities for, for, for technology to enable individuals and the communities in which those individuals participate in to become self-aware and co-create together opportunities to support people. Over and beyond that, of course, not just see someone toppling into a difficult situation as the problem in itself. It's a symptom of usually some other deeper problems that led to that. So what is the true nature of the problem? Where could we create the maximum value to help that person not just solve the problem that they've encountered, but help them address the underlying cause that led to it, that can give them a more secure and solid platform from which to realize their own life journey and self-potential. And I think this curiosity of what it is that underlies these problems, what it is that we could be doing more of, mobilizing resources, whether it's through community groups, whether it's through a more active, curious, innovative state, or volunteers or third sector, or us as individuals being more curious and willing to support others around us in our community who who are in need of support. Just mobilizing curiosity and care mixed with some of the emerging technologies. There's so much more that we could could do to support uh, to those who need it. I think a big part of that is increasing awareness. Self-awareness is a massive one, but just awareness in general, even for organizations, so that they have the ability to affect change, being able to move away from seeing numbers on a spreadsheet to actually understanding and empathizing with real human beings. And I think one of the consequences or one of the, the legacies of the kind of industrial way of thinking 
was to systematize at scale human beings as numbers, yeah. as cogs in a machine. And we're still dealing with that legacy yeah. right now. And it's going to be really interesting to see how institutions can move away from that. Because I was watching this really interesting video. I think I sent it to you yesterday about the way that we can make technology humane. I don't know if you had a chance to to watch it. No, no, I didn't. Tell me about it. Okay. <laughs> well, it was by this guy called Tristan Harris, who I believe is involved in The Social Dilemma. The lead figure in it, I think, yeah. Awesome. I haven't seen it because I don't have Netflix, but I managed to watch this talk by him anyway, so I'm kind of in the know. And it's got loads of brilliant quotes in it and loads of brilliant ideas, so we'll link to this so you guys can watch it. One of the things he was saying is we've been spending so much of our time upgrading machines that we've actually been downgrading humans because mm. of the way we've been creating technology in a way that downgrades us, which I thought was so true. But the other thing he said that I wasn't expecting which I think we really need to pay attention to when we're thinking about moving away from numbers on a spreadsheet to real human beings. As he said, we've been moving towards that by doing human-centered design, but actually what we've been doing is bringing in human-centered bugs, the bugs of what it is to be human into the design process. So we haven't actually been solving the problem. We've just been bringing in more human problems into the technology space. So the transition from okay, here are like these numbers, I can't make sense of the human cost of what's going on, to actually realizing the humanity and human nature and, and understanding that problem. We have a long way to go because even right now we're trying with doing human-centered design, which is, as it says, it's putting a human being at the center of the design process and designing around them. Even that itself, we've not fully gained the skill and, and the ability to switch to a full empathetic understanding of human nature when it relates to certain situations you're right what's interesting and slightly scary and it's starting to play out now about automation and well particularly machine learning and ai is that in order to optimize our in this case media and information systems but and soon it will be across service systems more widely is it needs data so machine learning and AI will basically use data out of populations to observe behaviors and optimize. But of course, in certain circumstances, all the machine learning doing is optimizing itself based on data of our own biases and our own <laughs> extreme behavior. So all the shadow side of humanity is being encoded into the machine learning and AI algorithms. And then turning that round and pushing that back out again and, and in some ways propagating human bias and all, all the worst of humanity as well as the best. And of course, if you're optimizing for time on site and you want the more extreme, basically the AI churns out the shadow side of us <laughs> in greater numbers and then we absorb that and become more extreme ourselves. And then you see the sort of vicious circle that starts to build where machine learning coupled to human shadow side starts to be self-generating in a recursive way. And this plays into another point, which is, I don't know whether it was Einstein or someone made the point that we create our architecture or technology, we shape our architecture and technology, in its turn, it shapes us because it defines the arena and the behaviors and priorities and things we can do. So we get shaped by the arena which then in turn continues to shape us. So if we're thinking about human-centered design, 
are we designing for people who have been shaped by previous arenas <laughs> or are we designing for the full potential of humans? And that I don't think has been thought about enough. A lot of the things that we find ourselves doing or saying and wanting that we can find markets for are behaviors cultivated out of historical ways of being. The arena has shaped us to believe in certain things. So we want more of those things as we believe it. But if we take a step back and say, what's generative of fulfilling of human potential, it may actually point you in a different direction. And do we have that level of wisdom to apply that to the design challenge? So we're not optimizing and reinforcing the same shaping forces of the arena. We're actually opening up new possibilities. I think that's an interesting area to explore. That's an amazing point. I think that throws us wide open because, yeah, the arena is also shaping the agent, right? Yeah. And we tend not to think about it. Like, even in our discussion, I was th- in my head, I was thinking, right, we have the agent, you have the arena, you can change one, you can change the other. But actually, the coupling that you said at the beginning, this yeah. coupling, this is a really clear example of it. And for people that might feel a little bit lost at this point, an example, a positive example would be, when you couple to your environment, it's something like this. So let's say that you wanted to stop using your phone at night. You're like, I'm spending too much time on, on the internet and I can't sleep. So you make a change to your environment. You take the charger that's in your bedroom and you put it into your living room and you say, every time I go to bed, I'm going to charge my phone outside of my bedroom. You have altered your environment. Okay. So you've made an alteration to your environment. Now, now that that environment is in play, Every time you go to bed, you're getting a better night's sleep. Potentially, you are reading a book just before bed. You are learning, you're feeling more rested, you have more energy. All of a sudden, your environment that you are coupled to is now actually improving your well-being and improving your life. Now, if you can imagine that, but in the reverse, where something is changing your environment that is making it worse for you, you can see how your environment, when you're coupled to it, can actually change the agent so that that is crazy but that is a really really good point yes you just need to walk down any street to see how our relationship with technology changes our behavior it's quite comical sometimes watching people walk into lampposts or trip over buggies or whatever it might be because our technology has now shaped our attention away from reality into our screens to the level where you wonder to what degree we've checked out of reality. Before lockdown, it was quite interesting to observe me being old enough that going back when I was young, you would take your camera to take pictures of beautiful scenes, wonderful nature, or or scenes that you wanted to capture and share the real world with people. And now you often see people trying to position themselves in a selfie with something to feed their social world. So the point of the real world is simply an arena for capturing things to feed the virtual world, not to actually enjoy for its own own wonder. So our whole relationship with reality in some ways is, is changing. But if you take that to what is it to be a successful person? Is it owning two cars, three cars, six cars, five houses, 15 houses? How far do you go down that pathway of what you should dedicate your life in pursuit of? We've come out of a, or coming out, I think, of an era which saw, as we know, material gain as being something that shapes our pursuit of who we think we are, our self-esteem, our, uh, our success in life is more or less 
adapted to and connected to the material wealth. And therefore, when we think about people's needs and wants, they were often very tuned in to things that sustain and augment that kind of value system and that set of behaviors. But we're now, I think, you know, a growing number of people, I, I detect this, I'm sure you do, are, are now feeling there's something more than just beavering away in the office to climb up the greasy pole and get a few more quid and and have an extra this and an extra that. There's something in the quality of living, of me, my autonomy, my ability to fulfill and undertake things in life that actually enrich the quality of my life and who I am and the things I can do. And what are things that add value to that? Once you open up that arena, that arena of thought, if you like, then into that comes a whole bunch of things that we could be creating in the arena to augment and fulfill that more spiritual and meaningful side of what it is to to have a, a good life. That's not to say things still don't need to be done and work needs to be done, but there are a number of other things that blossom out of that idea of what it is to live a fulfilling and flourishing life. The more we tease people out into thinking and inhabiting those things, the more people, I think, are likely to reduce the levels of anxiety, the levels of worry and unhappiness, and even mental health, a benchmark, a marker of how well we're not doing is the degree to which mental health is now becoming a huge issue in society. You know, up to a quarter of people who have a clinical-grade mental health issue in any one year, usually depression or anxiety. And that is symptomatic that the arena we've built and the agents that we are are not coupling well. There's something gone wrong, something that needs adjusting, something that needs to be rethought. And I think everything we've been talking about is the importance of understanding that coupling for the health of the individual, the health of the society and the arena, and the need to think more deeply about what that future looks like and what that coupling could be such that we individually and collectively move forward to something better as a future society. It's scary because of the paradigm change elements of it, and there are bits that will start to fall down and we're starting to see those breaks appear but it's, as we've said before, it's also a huge opportunity for individuals and, and collectives to reimagine what these new arenas might be. And in doing so, what what new possibilities for the agent arise out of that, i.e. ourselves, in terms of a different way of and a better way of living. If anyone listening to this think, oh, man, he's a raving communist or something, that's not where I'm coming from. This isn't about rehashing old political ideas. This is, I think, something, as we've talked about before, we need something new here, something new that has what it is, you know, rediscover and reconceptualize what it is to live well. What is it to live a a life that enables as many of us as possible to flourish and realize our potential, which is a common theme we've been talking about. It can't be just being a cog in a wheel. There is more to that. What is the more and how do the wheels become more human so we can express and live out our humanity even within inside our institutions? What might be better and more 
engaging and fulfilling forms of work. I mean, these are all part of this debate and discussion about what this new arena might look like. And I think we've both discussed this already, but the pandemic has amplified this. It's been kind of a way of saying, hey, we've been sleepwalking into a lot of issues and a lot of problems that we weren't necessarily considering. And now it brings that under the spotlight, both on a very personal level for for the individual, but then looking at the way that we've organized our society, our institutions, our politics, uh, our environment, we're just starting to evaluate these things. It's been bubbling under the surface for a long time and people have been talking about this, but I'm sure that this environment now, where we've had to stand still for a, a while and actually confront ourselves, means that we're evaluating what is a good life and people are maybe starting to not see a strict correlation between quality of life and certain jobs that they're working and I think that this is just a discussion that will be had over the course of the next few years people are going to discuss what does it mean to live a good life how do I work with a sense of purpose and find meaning in my life loads of these topics especially like dealing with the meaning crisis I know that you and I would want to to discuss Mm. and just to give another shout out to John Viveki who we mentioned at the start of this show he's actually done a full series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis which explores that as well how do you find meaning in this new world how do you think act and behave in a world that is fundamentally different from the one you were even born in that's how quickly the world is changing so I just wanted to bring that up. I think that's super important. Yeah. One of the things that makes me feel that this debate we're having is really important. I mean, I can imagine many people here going, oh, aren't you exaggerating? You know, maybe it's not as bad as that. Why do you feel it necessary to think about this in such paradigmatic ways? Is, is the work I've been doing looking at futures, you know, especially future of healthcare, but more futures more generally? And We live in a time where we look back after the last 10 or 15 years and we've seen just a complete revolution in technology and how it's changed our lives. Just think of the smartphones, social media, to name a few. We sequence the genome. We've got drones flying around. We have machine learning and AI in its earliest forms doing all sorts of incredible things. And that's just in the last 10 or 15 years. As Technology is democratized around the world. So there are now more people doing PhDs in China than I think the rest of the world put together. More parts of the world are doing more innovation, able to share their fruits more extensively through the internet. What we're seeing is exponentially increasing levels of innovation with exponentially more powerful tools to do it. And so the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years are going to see a change unlike anything we could ever had before and anything we could imagine. And a lot of those tools and technologies and systems that will come out of that period of innovation are going to be tools and systems that augment further the way that our institutions currently run and will deepen ever more profoundly the source code of our arena and therefore if we truly believe we need a shift in how we think about what the arena is in order that we individually and collectively might flourish it's important that we think about what that calls for so as these way more powerful technologies and institutional entities either strengthen themselves or arrive on the scene 
we collectively are shaping that in ways that augment our individual and collective flourishing and autonomy, not ones that will damp down on it and squash it even further. Because it's equally likely, in fact, even more likely, that with sensors everywhere, data, mass surveillance, totalitarian instincts, either for commercial or political reasons, are going to have lots of scope to take a hold of that arena and by virtue of that ourselves in greater ways than we've ever seen to date. And we could find ourselves sleepwalking into many different dystopias. Now, it doesn't have to be that way, but it's more likely that things could move in that direction, I suspect, if we are not collectively having this conversation about what kind of world we want in the future and how we want to mobilize these new technologies and reshape our institutions for the future. So as well as seeing things going wrong around us now, I think the forces that are coming need to be shaped in ways that serve us. And these debates and discussions, both individually, what can I do to enhance and enrich my agency? What can I do in my place of work? What can I do in the places where I have influence to engage people in a greater awareness of this and participate in this debate and discussion? the more likely it will be that we can have an opportunity to not nihilistically accept and with a fatal way the creation of new arenas and the institutional forms that inhabit it, but that we have an active participatory role in shaping that. And I think we owe it to ourselves, to our children and our children's children and the humanity that follows us to grasp that and make that one of the causes that uh, can embolden us and fill us with a sense of vitality and meaning i couldn't think of a better way to to end this episode really <laughs> i think that's the the right note to hear i would just add as a couple of takeaways knowing yourself knowing the arena or the arenas and having conversations with others about these things are just so important and i think that andy and i both want to explore those themes especially getting to know yourself and knowing your arena and show you hopefully through the conversations that we're having that these conversations can be ones you can have with everyone. Let's go out and talk to people and make this relatable and accessible because ultimately these are the conversations that need to be had right now. And that's the end of episode two. It looks as if my previous self was already trying to sum up and do an outro live in the conversation. But I thought it would be nice to speak to you again anyway, just to leave you with a few questions to ponder over before our next episode. Andy mentioned that the arena we've built and the agents that we are are not coupling well, indicating that something's gone wrong. What do you think? Are we struggling to couple to our arena effectively? Another thing to chew on is, in what ways is the arena shaping and influencing you that you might not have been previously aware of? And if a rapidly changing world requires more agency, what does it mean to become more self-authoring of our own lives? What might that look like? Finally, I wanted to mention that we put links to a bunch of things that came up in this episode in the show notes. There's a link to John Vaveke's excellent YouTube series in case you want to deep dive into the concept of the agent and arena from a philosophical and psychological perspective. There's also Nathaniel Brandon's book, The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, before reading it, I thought of self-esteem as a much more shallow concept, 
something where you have to convince yourself of having a positive self-image in order to attain one. But this is actually a really practical book that goes much deeper than that. I've also linked to a few of the other people we mentioned, including Tristan Harris, Daniel Schmachtenberger and Boyat Sla. So there's plenty to explore before we next speak. Anyway, really look forward to having you back for the next episode. And as always, if you want to get in touch, send us an email to hello at metaperspective.io to continue the conversation. Until the next time, take care.